Guys, I am not going to lie to you. This is not your normal episode. This is an episode uh, born of necessity because we knew <clears throat> that there were going to be weeks that I wasn't going to be able to do shows. So we recorded this a while ago. I don't know when it is you're going to be listening to it, um, but we recorded it the week uh, that Afghanistan kind of fell apart. And uh, Charlie Faint, uh, the Havoc Journal owner, and I talked about having um, spotlight episodes where we take a certain Havoc writer and just talk exclusively with them. Uh, so the subject is kind of them. And we decided for the first episode, since I had missed talking to him on the guns episode, that I would talk to Greg Drobny. And it was a great discussion. But then I had to break his heart at the end and say, hey, by the way, this is going to be a spare episode and we don't know when it's going to air. So, and he was very good natured about it. And uh, so we're going to break glass in case of emergency and use this. So if you're hearing it, it means uh, I'm sipping margaritas somewhere or something and uh, and not wasn't able to record uh, the podcast the way we normally would. But this is a great discussion. I had a really good time with Greg, and I'm actually looking forward to take many more weeks off because if we can do more of these spotlight episodes, I think it'll be really cool for you guys. And it's a great way to really get in depth with one person um, from the Havoc family at a time. And... Uh, and yeah, just a great discussion with Greg. I'm not going to give too many spoilers out about where it goes, but uh, just, you know, the full runs the full gamut of subjects from philosophy to religion to, um, you know, his personal story. Just a really good time. So you guys are going to enjoy it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this episode of the Weekly Havoc, where we engage in a roundtable discussion with the staff and writers at Havoc Journal, try to make a little order out of chaos, except of course, this week, when we actually are pioneering a new, I don't know what we should call it, it's a new line of effort, I guess, or a new kind of spin for the Weekly Havoc, where we are spotlighting uh, writers of interest at Havoc Journal, and the very first person that we're doing this with is Greg Drobny. Greg is a former airborne infantryman, is a PSYOP team chief, political consultant, professional military blogger, and is currently Code Platoon student outreach coordinator. He holds a BA and MA in history, as well as a master's of science in organizational psychology. Greg, thanks a million for being the test jumper on this. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. I appreciate it, and I'm glad to be the guinea pig. It's the I don't make the table very round, but I can, you know, <laughs> offer whatever well, I can. Yeah, as, as as I said, I mean, now sometimes the test jumpers don't make it, as we, you and I both know. So who knows? <laughs> you might be the first and last, but I, I, I like our chances to start out with. Um, that's that feels good. Um, and I, I guess I should kind of set the table by by prefacing why you were selected. What you what qualifications? made you stand out above the crowd. The, the biggest thing is, um, I, <laughs> the biggest thing's always with us availability. And also, <laughs> uh, but, but also and, and, and on a more substantive note, um, you know, I missed you on the guns episode and it was mm -hmm. the first and only episode that I missed of the weekly havoc. And, um, I have a deep case of FOMO. So, uh, my fear of missing out was kicking in and, uh, 
you had a lot of great points. Charlie and I talked about it and I was like, look, we should have him on and do something more in depth. So it seemed like uh, if this works, it's largely because it was an excuse to talk to you and uh, <laughs> others will follow in that wake. Love so that. that was kind of that's kind of the the level setting to do for the spotlight episode. But um, let's dive into I mean, as I kind of told you before the show, you know, the subject really is you. Um, and I want to get into your writing a little bit and I want to get into, um, you know, your involvement with Havoc, but let's just start with you yourself. Did the army raise you? Was that your first job out of high school? No, not at all. Actually, I came in as an old man, so I have a bit of a unique perspective. Um, I joined September 11th happened when I was 28 years old. And uh, as you probably well know, 28 going into the airborne infantry is, I mean, you're an old man. The the joke going through basic training for me was, hey, old man, don't break your hip. Well, I was on on a RIP contract at the time, and the joke was Mm -hmm. on them because at the end of RIP, I did break my hip. Uh, and I, I ended up, I ended, show up I ended up at yeah, Ranger yeah. Training Brigade and uh, and didn't deploy. I was I was there from two thousand one, well two thousand two through the end of two thousand four. Um, so wow. I, you know I was playing Ranger but not deploying as Ranger that kind of thing. And then I got out, went through SFAS after that through National Guard and uh, did some didn't make that got hurt there as well. Ended up doing some contracting work and then back in as a psyop guy, uh, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. So so no, I by the time I joined the army at twenty eight, I had already been living on my own for ten years and uh, doing various blue collar jobs. One of those guys who's you know done everything but not really good at any of them. <laughs> I know that feeling uh, all too well. Um, what was it that you were doing that you could drop everything at 9-11 and enlist? I was actually, I was working in Las Vegas uh, at the time. I was uh, I was a delivery driver for a construction company that, that made uh, custom work for like casinos and things like that. And I was delivering. I'm one of the few people that's probably ever seen the Las Vegas Strip completely bare of people because I was down there on 9-11. I was down on the Strip and, you know, it was just a ghost town. It was like something you see in a movie. Um, and it, it just, I realized like, you know, I wasn't really doing anything all that big and all that important. And I, I had considered joining the military for a while. And that was kind of like this big call that said, yep, that's what I should do. Yeah. So I, I did. And uh, I was off to basic just a couple of months later. So I'm going to jump ahead in order to jump further back in, into your background. But for somebody that's gone on to get a master's in two different subjects, two masters, uh, and somebody that's done a whole lot of accomplished things in your life, you don't strike me as somebody that doesn't have a plan to start with. So if 9-11 <laughs> hadn't happened, what was the plan? What was your ambition? What were you trying to do? That's, that's a that's a fair question because I, at, you know, looking back on it, I'm not really sure. That, I think that was part of it was that I was desperately lacking in any kind of a plan. Um, huh. I had been I had been kind of a vagabond in my first ten years out of high school, just traveling the world on my own. You know, I'd gone to Thailand. Um, you know, I'd gotten into like MMA type stuff, and I'd gone to Thailand to train, and you just traveling around the world. Be I was trying to be a musician, that didn't work too well. Um, <laughs> and, you know, just Wait, let's just let's stop there. Where, where, where'd you go in Thailand? Did you go to uh, Phuket? Did you go to Thai Muay Thai? Where did you go? Yeah, I was I was down in in Phuket, and uh, I spent okay. I spent almost a month there. Back in is that how this, you say that? You say Phuket? 
Yeah, it's Phuket. Okay. Um, I, yeah. I was like, Phuket seemed yeah. <laughs> almost perverse and profane to me, but it okay, does. yeah. All right. It does. Yeah, Phuket. Great, great place. I mean, just absolute paradise there. You know, some of the nicest people in the world. And uh, they're they're more they're more inclined to play beach soccer than they are to train Muay Thai. You know, you go and I went there with the idea of I'm going to train all the time. Now nah, you end up, you know, drinking and playing beach soccer with a bunch of people. So uh, great time. Can we stay with that for a second? So I, I got I have a little bit of, of uh, secondhand knowledge about. Phuket and uh, and the Muay Thai scene there, and I want to bounce some of that off you. So my um, on my last deployment, my wife and kid, well, my wife was fed up and was like, "I'm going to deploy also." Mm. So she went to Thailand, which is her like spirit country. She loves Thailand, okay. so she went there and actually ended up at an at a Muay Thai camp. Um, because she wanted to do some Muay Thai and have my kid do some Muay Thai. And they lasted for about two days. And <laughs> it wasn't just the training, but it was also just the cleanliness. Like mm. they got in there and they were, um, you know, they would do the drills where you're uh, punching um, mitts or, punch, or you know, kicking, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like um, tie pads. And they were in a line and they'd be filtering through the line and you'd kick and literally the sweat from the person who had just gone before you in line oh. is, you know, coming off the, the, yeah. the, the tie pads. And then at the end of the day, when you're taking your wraps off and everything and putting your shin guards away, um, they just throw them in a pile. Right. And nobody would clean them. Right. And apparently the girlfriends of the trainers were like supposed to, but nobody really cared. And, um, and it was just filthy. And so they, um, started like after two days, they were breaking out and they were like, Hey, we, we gotta, we gotta call a halt to this. So <laughs> yeah. let me start with that. Did, was that your experience also? Was there a cleanliness differential? Oh, most certainly. I mean, that's a, it's a very big cultural difference just in general with the whole communal way of living. Like they just don't look at individual, the individuality the way that we do you know it's very different and that that has its positives and negatives the the negatives being exactly what you just mentioned you know the the sense of personal sanitation you know keeping your, your sweat <laughs> off of me you know that kind of thing is pretty foreign to them but that same concept it, it kind of it carries across into other ways like you know how they treat you as a guest well, yeah. you know, if, if somebody invites yeah. you into their home, like you're not a guest that they're just having over, like they take that seriously. So, you know, you're, you become part of their family. And I experienced that It's some of the most welcoming, uh, yeah. friendliest people in the world because they just don't see those barriers like we do. But again, the downside is you, know, <laughs> you better be ready to get, you know, close and personal with that kind of thing. So, well, I, I, I hate to, I hate to make too deep a philosophical point out of this, but since you bring it up. I mean, there is something to that duality of an issue that I think is missed. Like this would be the kind of thing where if I'm Trump, I go, well, that's because it's a shithole of a country, but it's like, yeah, but you're missing it. Like there, there's, there's positives and there ne there's negatives. Absolutely. And it seems like that's something that we, you know, we, we too often want to just be binary about this and see it as good or bad when in fact mm -hmm. it can be both that that's allowed. Oh, absolutely. And I, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think that's one of the things that we we lose with the individualism. Like individualism has a lot of very great aspects to it. Uh, but it, the downside is, you know, we kind of lose that communal respect for for one another. And we uh, we kind of start sequestering ourselves even more and more, especially with the, you know, the pandemic doesn't help that. Right. We, we want to, oh, totally. you know, we want to cloister ourselves in our room and, and stay completely safe. Well, that's that's not really life. That's not how humans are designed. And we lose out a lot on the communal fam, you know, 
interaction with other people. And I think that's something that's, again, you have the upside and the downside. The upside is a place that is more communal is going to have a better support network. They're going to help one another out. They're going to be more giving with their time, but they're also going to pass diseases around to each other way (laughs) faster. Right. 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 It's like this, it's this dichotomy of being a very, very difficult thing. So yeah. And, and, and that's why I think there's a little bit of, I don't want to be too strong in my language, but I'll just say poison in trying to look at everything as either, you know, that binary of pure good or pure evil um, that a lot of people, I think, travel uh, and go, oh, my God, you know, Americans, America's just the worst. And, you know, thank God I'm here because this makes sense. Or they go, well, I'm never leaving America because America is the best and there's nothing to learn anywhere else. It's like, no, you can learn things from other places and (laughs) have the critical thinking capabilities of going, maybe not everything should be translated from that country. But, hey, there's a lot of good to be gained from looking at other cultures and other places and, and learning their best practices. Absolutely. And I think that's that's one of the downsides. And, it, it, you know, this is a military themed podcast, so I think it has to be mentioned. One of the downsides to traveling as part of the military is that you have a very skewed sense of another culture. Yes. You, know, you, you yep. show you show up in full kit like they're not going to treat you the same as they did me when I just walked in in, in board shorts and a, and a Hawaiian shirt. You know, it's, it's sure. very different how they treat you and how you view everyone. So getting to experience those cultures without having gone in the military, I think, is hugely beneficial to seeing the world and, and doing exactly what you said is appreciating those other cultures and the ups and downs for whatever they are. I've got so much more that I want to talk to you about with Thailand specifically, um, just for <laughs> starters. But because you raised this, I want to veer off for one minute. Mm-hmm. Um when I was deployed, I always, now obviously I was in the intelligence field, but I felt that I was, and I was a collector. So for me, I felt like I was failing if I talked to more Americans per day than I did whatever the indigenous mm-hmm. people were. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, and and that never played out. I mean, I was always going to talk to more Americans than I did anybody else, but that was my ambition was because that, that sense to try to break through um, the thin green line and not go native, but be able to really see and hear their concerns and kind of get a better feel for who they were. Did you see that also, especially in PSYOP? Did you, did you have that, that kind of internal pressure of like, Hey man, I'm not getting to the, to the mineral soil of really what these people are about because the uniform is holding me back or the fact that you're back on fob at, at the end of the day. And, you know, it's too American, and and it's like, hey, I'm 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 missing something. Something's getting lost in translation here. Does that make any sense? Could you relate to that? Absolutely. I I think you put it exactly exactly spot on with what I felt. You know, I I felt and I vocalized this numerous times while I was in Iraq. I could probably do far better work in just you know pants, a t-shirt, and a, give me a Toyota. You know, yeah. and cruise around. Um, you know, there was a there was an article that was being passed around. You probably you maybe saw it. Uh, I believe the title of the article was "What Just Happened," talking about Afghanistan. And uh, the author, yeah. I thought he he mentioned some really salient points. And one of them was that we, as a as a military culture, like we didn't fight a twenty year war. We fought a, a yes. year a war for twenty years, one year at a time. And we all got in there, and we tried to do our best for that nine months or 10 months that we were in country. Well, that's really not what getting into an indigenous population is all about, right? Just as you just mentioned, like in order to get in and fully understand a culture, 
that's really difficult to do. And that, yeah, the, the uniform limits that. The the you know walking into a, a village with MRAPs and fifty cals, like <laughs> they're not going to talk to you right. the same way they would if you didn't have all that. That that's just and everybody yeah. knows that, right? Everybody figures that out, and you're like, wow, what am I missing? What am I missing here? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, that was on my do, mind a lot. Do you know about Jim Gant? Does that name ring a bell? Did you it, follow it him at all? It does, and now I'm not. I know I know the name, but I don't know where. No, it's funny because I, I read about him years ago, and then his name cropped back up this week. Um, to be clear, we're recording on the week that Afghanistan, uh, that the drawdown has happened uh, disastrously in Afghanistan, and his name popped back up, and uh, so it kind of reminded me who he was and his backstory. But it's, and we don't need to go on a huge tangent about it, but it dovetails with what we're talking about. Um, he was a SF. I think he was a major by the time he was thrown out of SF. Mm. And uh, and I can't remember if he was dis- – I think he was dishonorably discharged. I, I can't remember all the the end result of how his career ended. But basically, um, he was accused of going native. Um, he uh, – his but he wrote a lot of white papers and made a big push um, from the time he was in Afghanistan to – under to to go more native and that especially in SF mm-hmm. that it was imp- and he said rather than focusing on centralized government focus on the tribes focus on strengthening mm-hmm. the tribes um, and he really worked uh, he he dressed native his men dressed native um, and they were by all accounts very effective mm-hmm. um, he d- definitely screwed up on several. In several, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, effects because he, uh, for one thing, he was interviewed by a Washington Post reporter. They ended up falling in love. She ended up not just quitting the Washington Post, but moving to Afghanistan and cohabitating with him in Afghanistan and then actually going on mission with him. She was actually like feeding ammunition to him during gunfights and stuff <laughs> like that. And they were just literally, and they called him like they said he was like a Lawrence of Arabia type. You know, they were like, he's Lawrence of, of Afghanistan. Anyway, so that, so I say all that to say, uh, you know, you might very well be able to take this too far, but sure. certainly a little of that goes a long way of being able to kind of walk a mile in, in somebody else's shoes. Um, anyway, just throwing that out there. Sure. I want to double back to the Thailand because I can't let that go because there's too <laughs> much interesting stuff that happens in Thailand. Did you come across the mafia in Thailand, especially in the Muay Thai scene? Not that I'm aware of, um, but okay. there were there were certain certainly times where you know, you could almost feel like this kind of trying to pull you in kind of the American yeah. thing, but it's hard to distinguish over there between the friendliness of the culture and what exactly they were, you know, huh. what are they after? Yeah. Like, I mean, literally you have, you have people over there trying to offer you their, their family, like here, marry into my family, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm like, well, wow. that's not, that's not why I'm here. I know there are a lot of Americans that go there for that reason, not right. why I was there. And, and so you do have that, but, uh, not not overt. There wasn't any overt that I was aware of. But what did you see with the with the overall sleaze? I mean, to Thailand, you you always. It seems like unless you're looking at the MMA or Muay Thai scene over there, it always seems like it it ends up being a story about sleaze. Somebody gets knifed in a bar. Some ex paratrooper does X, Y, and Z, or gets <laughs> linked up with the Russian mafia over there, or something like that. Did you see? Did you rub shoulders with any of that? Did you ever come into contact with that? I didn't, but there again, I think that comes back to traveling single, just traveling completely mm. alone by myself. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't even in the military yet, so I probably didn't give off that 
air of, you know, over the top American, you know, I, I don't know. I, I was just kind of trying to lay low and I'm meeting fellow travelers. So I'm hanging out with guys from Australia and, you know, yeah. New Zealand yeah, yeah, yeah. and up from all these different places, Sweden, a lot of Swedes go there, which was fascinating. Um, so I, you know, it was just a huge cultural experience, but no, I didn't, I didn't see any of that. I, I saw a lot of, a lot of things that you just don't expect, you know, in the Muay Thai world, especially, you know, here kids go play soccer and, and baseball. There yeah. they, they do Muay Thai. You go to a bar and 10 o'clock at night and they, they're wheeling out the six-year-olds. And these kids yeah. are like picture-perfect Muay Thai fighters. You know, they're just beating the snot out of each other. Like, wow, this That's is incredible. very different. Yeah, you're in a That's bar incredible. on a Friday night, you know, and these kids are beating each other up. So very, you know. And here you get arrested for doing that. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, just think <laughs> of the injustice. Yeah, I know, crazy. Uh, what was you? What was so? When you were trying to make it, I mean, were you like seriously considering that as a career? Or did you think you were going to be a vagabond and like, hey, let me? I, I know I want to do something militant, but let me just wander until I find my niche. Was that kind of where you were at? That's more or less it. I mean, I had kind of figured out that I wasn't. Um, you know. The MMA thing, I knew that I wasn't going to be a professional fighter. I, I was into it more for the journey. I always have been. That's um, I've had to recently kind of stop just due to injuries piling up and military injuries being what they are. I can't do jujitsu anymore and things like that, which is sad because I love it, but uh, yeah. not not something I do anymore just because of back injuries. But it was all to me. It was always about the journey, just the experience and learning. I was a better coach than I was a fighter. I could teach people mm. much better than I could mm -hmm. do it myself. I, I always joke like the people I've coached, I can teach you to beat me up really quick. So, <laughs> you know, I'm not that good, but I can teach you how to do it. Um, but no, it, it really was about the journey. And like you said, it was kind of waiting until find, you know, find that spot where, oh, you know, this makes sense. Because I, I didn't yeah. have a lot of direction until, and I think the military did help with that. You know, it, Yeah, it, really it seems did. like it. The military gave you that, that direction then. Absolutely. I, you know, and I yeah. think, especially being in, in, in combat arms, you know, you go into airborne infantry and it's like, your direction, your direction doesn't matter anymore. What matters is our direction. Right. And right. you start to realize, like you start to cut away the things that don't matter. And that helps you kind of make sense of a lot of things, I think. And, and yeah, definitely helped in that way. And I went in with this idea that I was going to be some cool high speed operator and my body told me, no, uh, yeah. no, yeah. no, you're not. Like I said, I, yeah. I was two days, I was two days away from graduating rip literally two days away and, uh, broke broken hip Ugh, and uh yeah the surgeons and part of my age played a part in that too i asked the uh, the regimental surgeon i said hey can i can i recycle and keep going he said we'd have no use for a 29 year old private with a broken hip it's like oh wow. ouch so you know that, yeah. that was kind of a, a kibosh on that and then i tried again with sfas and tore up other parts of my body too so you know it's one of those when things did, when did you when did you uh when did you get uh you know, when did you fail on, on SFAS? What phase? Did that would have been, uh, Oh, it was, it was in, uh, in SFAS. Like it was at the end. Like they just, I just didn't get selected. So, Oh, so you, you completed, you were just a non-select. Yeah. I was a non-select. Oh, wow. But yeah, good for you for making it through dear God. Oh, it was on, a, on, a, I mean, on a rehabbed hip. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and that was when I think it was at that moment, like that was what kind of told me that the physical realm was not where I was going to excel. And so, you know, you, huh. you brought up the whole thing about, you know, master's degrees and things. I realized like, and I had had a lot of NCOs that I really respected who had told me, they said, you're, you're kind of the opposite of a lot of people. They said, you, you have the right mindset. You don't have the body for this. 
And yeah. so I, I kind of took that to say, well, okay, I need to start focusing more on the intellectual pursuits and, and really devoted myself to, you know, I finished my bachelor's degree, got a couple of master's degrees. So, you know, that, that kind of gave me that direction of realizing, okay, you know, I'm unlike, you know, you hear all these stories of guys say, well, I could have gone pro. No, I, I couldn't have gone pro. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I never could have gone pro. That was never realistic. But, but I think it's worth saying, uh, and not that you're not saying this, but, but it seems to me that that's a journey worth taking though, because you want to answer those questions. You want to know if you could have, and you have to hit that wall sometimes to go, okay, cool. Now I know my left and right limits. Now I know what's possible. Absolutely. And I think that's so like, and that's one of the things that that world does for you. You, you test yourself like no other, you know, you really get an idea of, okay, what can I do and what can't I do? That's, that's a really important journey. I think for every guy to, to come to grips with that and say, we have our limits, you know, we're not all, we're not all Tim Kennedy. You know, we can't just yeah. like push, you know, we don't have limitless gas tanks, but we can't right. just keep going forever. So we, we have some kind of limits somewhere and figuring those out are, I think really important in the journey of, of every guy. Yeah, it's funny. You know, uh, I, I talked about this recently with somebody. I can't remember who. Um, oh, actually, it might have been with Boone Cutler. Um, uh, we were discussing, you know, uh, veteran influencers mm. and, um, you know, how they have become for males in this country. They've kind of become our Ricky Lakes and Oprah Winfrey's. You know, there's kind of that that sense that they are the um, pop psychologists of, mm-hmm. And it's not exclusively male, but, but generally a male mindset. And, uh, and that idea of uh, the Tim Kennedy's, the Jocko Willinks being able to kind of push you to that peak level of performance and, and, um, and how that and all the second and third order effects that that has or should have in, in their framework throughout the rest of your life. And I think that's true for some people. And I think where if there's a flaw in what they do. It's just that that comes down. That's what works for them, and mm-hmm. it doesn't. That and I don't say that to belittle what they're saying, and I don't say that because, you know, I've walked a mile in their shoes and can go, oh yeah, well, here's where you're wrong. I, I just think though, not everybody's built for that, and it's important to acknowledge that that difference. And sometimes, especially for guys, until you break yourself, you kind of don't know what your limits are, and that's why so much of those veteran influencers get so many followers and so many people fall in line because there's not, unless you're really trying to go through buds or through SFAS, you're not really getting tested in the civilian world, certainly to the point that you'll find that out. Right. Oh, and that's, that's a hundred percent true. You, yeah, you hit it right on the head. And I think it, you know, just to caveat what you said there, it's not that guys like that are wrong. They're not wrong at what they do. You know, somebody like Tim or, or Jocko, right. like you said, right. what they what they do and how they work mentally works extremely well in that environment. But what you like you said, we all have limits that are that are slightly different. You know, I, yeah. I actually worked for Tim when I was at Ranger Up. I mean, he was a part owner and I did some, mm. you know, some stuff with him in the writing world. Um, you know, he's an intense guy, but, you know, we, we operate a little bit differently in that way of. You know, he, he's he's on that physical path, yeah. whereas yeah. You, at, you know, for some of us, there has to be those different roles of saying, OK, well, what can I contribute? Because it's not that. Right. <laughs> that's that's well, not what you know, it's, the table. It's, it's interesting. There was a um, it, the first thing that comes to my mind is there's a, a guy, a, a friend of mine from back in the days when I, I bounced at nightclubs and he was a bouncer and he was a. Um, he was two belts ahead of me in jujitsu and he was 
more dedicated than I was religious about it. We, one of those guys that keeps a notebook with him in mm. on, on the mat to take mm. notes about every move that he's doing and all that. Yep. And, uh, at the time we were living in LA and, um, we were each trying to make it as writers. And I remember one night he, uh, you know, we were just BSing and he said, he's like, I'm acutely aware that I am not the writer I should be because I do the jujitsu that I do. And that was, and he, you know, he ended up getting his black belt um, in the Henzo Gracie family, and 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 teaching and doing a lot of stuff and all that. But I think, um, so to your point, you're actually right. It's not that the Tim Kennedys, Jocko Willings, Dave Goggins of the world are wrong. It's that they're very right. But I think it's important to specify they're very right for them or for people like them. And it's very, I I personally think it's very worthwhile to try to walk down those paths if you're inclined to. But not to take it as a sign of discouragement if you can't fulfill that, get to the same end goal, because you probably are different and you might have a different purpose. And it might be like, okay, I could be a second rate or third rate Tim Kennedy, or I could be the best me I could possibly be and do whatever it is that you're meant to do, whether it's writing or, you know being a, running a small business or whatever it is. Um, and, and I think that's, that's a point that sometimes in, in the social media influencer culture is kind of missed. No, absolutely. You're absolutely right. And that's kind of what I, you know, I came to the conclusion, like I said, on my journey of trying to go down this road of, you know, first Ranger regiment and then special forces and realizing the body just wouldn't, wouldn't quite keep up and then yeah. recognizing it. Hey, you know, I do have a, a strong mind and I can dedicate to a lot of different things. And that, and that's, you know, and you realize as you go into this concept of influencers, like you were talking about, like at some level, you have to distinguish who to trust on certain subjects. Well, you know, a, a person cannot be the best at everything. They just can't. Yeah. There's not enough time in the day. You know, unfortunately, we a lot of people on social media like to think they are. You know, just just turn on social media and look at all the foreign policy experts and all the disease, <laughs> you know, communicable disease yeah. experts all at the same time. It's like, what on earth? Like, how do you know all this? Like, and they're I, still only juniors in college. It's amazing right, that they know all right, that. They're just right. brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm 48 years old. I've dedicated my life to like a lot of academic work, and I I don't know half of what these people know. You just you know, and you're 25 years yeah. old and you have a sociology degree. Congratulations. It's amazing. It's amazing. You're brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. Every Everything. And they're all on Twitter that? at the same time. It's just amazing. It's <laughs> fascinating. So yeah, I think at some level you have to recognize your limits and say, okay, what what is my place and how do I how do I make that work? For me, it was writing. You know, I I knew I remembered back to being in high school and writing came naturally. But I also recognize that you know that's like that's like a professional athlete saying, well, you know, this sport comes naturally. Well, it doesn't mean you stop. You keep pushing right, and you keep right. developing. And that's what I did with writing. And I, you know, I learned that through professional writing. I learned it through academic writing. Uh, you know, all of that, I really, really pushed myself. And so I think that's, you know, that's one of the big things that got me here. After the military, I started with Ranger Up. I started writing articles nonstop, just constantly writing articles. And that kind of led me down this path of where I am now of being involved in the veteran community. So it was really like realizing exactly what you're saying. What, what is my skill? You know, what am I good yeah. at? How do I develop yeah. that the best that I can? Yeah, I, I, it's funny. I was watching for the first time in probably 20 years. I watched uh, that uh, movie Wonder Boys 
with mm-hmm. Michael Douglas uh, that was mm-hmm. based on the Michael Chabon book. Speaking, since we're not, you know, this is completely apropos of nothing. But um, <laughs> but but one of the, at one point he's playing a writing teacher, um, and uh, and he at one point in the movie he says. Um, I have two kinds of students. I have students that are really talented and students that aren't. And to the talented ones, I tell them to keep writing because they have talent and they deserve to. To the ones that aren't talented, I tell them to keep writing because it's the only way they're going to get to where they need to be. Mm-hmm. And I and, and the more I've thought about that over the years, because that statement kind of stayed with me, but the more I thought about that, I thought you kind of can apply that to every and just about any endeavor. That if you stay with it at some and it's not where you're supposed to be, at some point it's going to nudge you to where you are supposed to be. But I think that applies to the military more than almost any other pursuit that I know. If you really dedicate yourself to it and it's not where you're supposed to be, I really do think it it inevitably spits you out into where you're supposed to go. And it's not always pleasant, but man, it, it, I do think it makes you who you are. And I, I say that segueing back to, uh, RTB when you were there, um, at the Ranger training brigade for two years, rehabbing your hip. I just, if you don't mind just walking us through that a little bit, because I, I think one of the worst places in the military to be is in that holding pattern where you you're in purgatory just trying to get back to normal and trying to get on with your life and accomplish your goals. And the big bureaucracy isn't letting you and it's right because you're hurt. So if you don't mind, just talk to me a little bit of that. Then if, if any of this, you know, relates to what you're oh, talking I, about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it was a, it was a weird, weird period because, you know, it was such a transition. I had, you know, you'd gone, I had gone through infantry school. I'd gone through airborne school doing really well, got through 98% of rip, uh, and I thought I had a groin pull. I, I, you know, I set out on my last ruck march. We had like two days left. I set out on my last ruck march and the medic stopped me. He said, you're, you're limping really bad. And he took me to the hospital and got x-rays and yeah, femoral head fracture. So the head of my femur yeah. was, was cracked. And yeah. so, you know, they sent me to RTB and at first I was, I did the worst thing in the army. Like you kind of note, noted there, I did one of the worst things in the army, which was to show up to a new unit on crutches. Um, and that's, that's humiliating. It really yeah. is. And yeah. so what I did, what, what I did is I, I, and this is terrible for long term, and I don't recommend young soldiers do this. I stashed the crutches pretty early on um, because I didn't want to be seen as that guy. I didn't want to be seen limping around and, and kind of the invalid. Um, and so I, I pushed. I did, you know, and I, I established myself fairly well at that unit. I ended up, uh, I was op four for the first, I think, year I was there. And then for the second year and a half, I ended up as the commander's driver. And, uh, you know, I pushed myself to, to be established and I learned just an enormous amount about the military. One of the, Mm -hmm. because a lot of our leaders were former regiment guys. They were former high speed guys who had gone to Florida. I was in Florida. I was at sixth, which is Mm -hmm. probably one of the best places in the army to be stationed. Cause I was, you know, you're down at Fort Walton beach all the time. Um, the people up at Fort Benning hated us because we'd always show up with suntans and long hair right. and, you know, they're like, Oh, right. it's, it's a surf <laughs> up, you know, and they're, they're stuck in Columbus, Georgia. Uh, but <laughs> that's, that's another story. Uh, but it was, it was great because it gave me an, uh, uh, an education on what good leadership looked like. Uh, something that a lot of people in the military don't get. They, they just don't, you know, you see these hard chargers that, that really cared. I mean, it, 
I, here it was, I got there in 2002, and there were at least two, I think there were at least two or maybe three guys at that battalion at that time who had been on the ground in the Battle of Mogadishu. So, yeah. you know, here it is yeah. just nine years later, that community's not that big, right? And right. so you're learning from these guys who had experienced just amazing, amazing things. And, uh, you know, you come, you get to that unit and you learn all of this stuff while you're trying to rehab an injury. Yeah, it was, it was stressful, but it taught me a lot about who I was and, and what I could do and what I couldn't. Um, now it may very well be that I'm paying today for those, those physical, you know, pushing through that pain, but it absolutely, like you said, you know, it, it, brought me to that point of realization of, okay, <laughs> it's, it's a big reality check showing up at a unit injured and, and trying, trying not to be, cause you don't want to be that guy. Talk about how then you left. How did that work out? What was the site? What was the transition like for you? So I, I got out in 2004. I had only done a three-year contract when I originally signed up. Cause I was, again, I was an older okay. guy, you know, I was 28 years old and I, I was smart enough to say, Hey, maybe this isn't Maybe this is the right path. Maybe it's not, but, you know, kind of hedging my bets, I guess. So I did a three-year contract and I got out. And when I got out, I had the idea that I was going to go into um, like maybe CIA or something. So my, I got out with the intent of pursuing a college degree and trying to go on to work with State Department or CIA. Uh, having done, Then I did a semester of college almost right away, 2005, I think. And I immediately started getting the itch to do what I had originally wanted to do, which is yeah. what I what I had originally wanted to do was be a special forces medic. That was my my goal. And okay. I, I, I was like, man, I got this itch. And then I found out that the National Guard had this deal where you could do a, what was called a try one. So they'll let, let you join the you know 19th group. You could join there for a year and you have a year to try SFAS. So I did that. And again, got hurt. And that's when I started rethinking the whole, you know, physical aspect of what I was doing. It was like, well, you know, that's where my limitations are. You know, I had this idea of being a little bit more high speed and, and then coming to grips with the realization that no, the, the old body is just not going to keep up with that. So I went, I got out and then I fell into some contracting work. I went through an executive protection school and did some overseas contracts, spent a bunch of time down in Central America doing... Yeah, working for Department of Homeland Security. And then then I realized, just real quick story, like then I realized it yeah. got to be about 2008. And I realized I, I actually felt, and this may sound kind of strange, but I felt like here were all of my friends who had deployed two, three, four yeah. times, and I had yeah. never deployed to the Middle East. And so that's when I went back into, into PSYOP and, and did a tour. And then at that point, I knew I was done. And at the end of my tour, happened to coincide with the end of that you know, when you join, it doesn't matter what you join for. It's technically eight years because you're in the IRR. Right. Well, that right. that time for me ended like the second I got off the plane from Iraq. And I was just, I just kind of went, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> I'm out. So, uh, I, I mean, I, there's so much I want to pick up on in that, in just what you said, because um, that's, that's a significant amount of experience, um, and experiences. And I want to start with the selection piece. So, um, were you injured in selection and you just toughed through it to be only to become a non-select or were you, um, did you actually VW or, or, or fail out with, um, with an injury? No, I, I mean, my, 
they never really tell you for sure when you're a non-select, but it, I know that it was land nav. <laughs> it's the same thing. Okay. It gets 90% okay. of people, right. but it was, I, right. I tore out a couple of discs in my neck and like, wow. it was really, really difficult to walk with a rucksack. And as it turned out, I ended up having uh, spinal C-spine surgery. Uh, actually it's been about four or five years ago now. Um, wow. cause wow. it was, it, it did some significant damage. And so, and so even, so even if you'd made it through selection, you couldn't have gone on to the Q course or anything. You were done. I looking back on it. No, I don't think I could have. I mean, I, yeah. I, th- I think yeah. I had done enough damages. I don't, I don't think that was very practical, uh, to yeah. keep going. Cause even when I did end up going back to Iraq later, um, I never carried another 65 pound ruck you know, for 15 miles at a time, but even wearing just body armor and regular stuff going on patrols in Iraq was pretty difficult. Like it, it yeah. did, a, it did some, it, yeah, it was pretty hard with, with my neck injury. So like I said, it ended up where I started losing feeling in my hand and, you know, my left hand didn't work, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. It's like, Hey, gotcha. this is, I don't think that's right. So that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And how did it, and so when, when you finally gave up the ghost, you gave up the dream of becoming a, a Delta and, and doing medic work <laughs> in, in SF. Yeah. What did you feel relieved? Were you like, okay, I guess that's out of my system. Did you feel crushed? Did you feel like, Hey, my ambitions or my identity has been snatched from me. What was your, what was your emotional state? Like that's a pretty complicated question. Cause it all, you know, all of the above, you know, there is some relief there, I think, because anybody who's been through something like SFAS, like you start to realize very quickly how incredibly taxing that life is. And you know, as much as you want it at some level, you're also saying, good heavens, this is horrible. Yeah. You know, this yeah. is like the physical, just constant bombard. And that's where, you know, going back to who we were talking about earlier, that's where some people thrive. You know, some people yeah. actually enjoy yeah. that. I remember reading years ago, and I know he's got a bad rap now as a cheater, but I I, I think there's some things to say about that. Uh, Lance Armstrong's book, It's Not About the Bike. He talks about that. And he said that's what made yeah. him excel was that when other people started hurting and suffering, yeah. that's when he pushed the gas pedal down harder. You know, and, and that's what that requires. For me, it was kind of like that relief at some level of saying – man, I don't think I can, you know, my body just is not going to take this anymore. But at the same time, it is crushing. It's, it's humbling, which I think is good. Going back again to what we were talking about earlier is understanding your limits. When you start to recognize what those limits are, uh, that humbling thing is a, it's a good thing ultimately. But at the time, yeah, it's hard. It's like being on the mat. You know this, you know, you get on yeah. the mat and if you, if you've not been humbled, you know, you don't think you've ever been humbled, then go to a good jujitsu school and you will be you know, guaranteed you'll be humbled and then you'll get to see like, Oh, I do have some serious limitations, you know? See, see, I'm very anti humility because I think at a certain point too, too much humility is enough. At some point it's like, Hey, I'd like to win too. Occasionally. Right. <laughs> right. No, I'm just kidding. Right. But no, right. That was right. my experience too often in jujitsu. But, uh, yes. and actually right. I want to ask you about, about jujitsu. When did you start doing jits? Um, were you, well, were you, were you in the military when you started doing it? The first time I did it, actually, and this this is funny for anybody who's followed MMA for a, a long, long time. Um, I started when I moved to Las Vegas before September oh. 11th. So this has been wow. would have been 2001. And I started at this school run by a Brazilian guy. And uh, there was this young purple belt there who was also helping teach by the name of Frank Mir. Uh, 
yeah, yeah. a very young wow. Frank Mir who also worked at, wow. at uh, casinos as a as a valet or something. And, you know, here's this young kid who's teaching. And, you know, I end up going wow. to the military later. I'm like, hey, I recognize that guy. Um, <laughs> so it was one of those things yeah. where I, I wish I had stuck with it. Because when I went into the Army, I had just started. I had been doing jiu-jitsu for maybe four months, five months when September 11th happened. So I joined the Army. And, of course, Ranger Regiment was big on it. So we even did it in RIP. And uh, that was cool. But I, I just didn't stick with it. And I got back into it later, probably about 2007 uh, in Denver. I moved back to my home in Denver mm. and, uh, joined Nate Marquardt's school in Denver. Oh yeah. Sure. And, uh, Nate's, Nate, that was a great school. I, I learned a ton, you know, training there for a little while, but then, like I said, after time, I, I live up in Northern Colorado now and I trained with some really good guys up here, but the injuries just caught up and I couldn't, I couldn't stay healthy. Well, that's why I was going to ask you. That's why I was asking, because for me, I, I had to stop doing jits, um, because of jumping. I, I was, I, I was training it. Um, and, and I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to make myself sound better than I am. I was not a great jujitsu player. I enjoyed the hell out of it. Uh, maybe if I'd done it earlier, it would have been great, but I was at John Danaher's, uh, school and, mm. or I took John Danaher's class, I should say at Henzo Gracie, New York. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, that was where I was mostly, and uh, enjoyed the hell out of it, but there was so many leg locks and heel hooks and things like that. I was like, I, I can't jump and and mm-hmm. do jujitsu. I was like, I, you know, jumping's jumping, and it's got enough variables going on. Right. I, so I want to know if that had been your experience as well, being on jump status, where you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't know about doing all the leg locks and heel hooks and stuff like that. And see, I never, I didn't do it while I was at RTB. And after yeah. I left RTB, I was never on jump status again, even though I was technically part of airborne units. Uh, gotcha. When I was at 19th group, I was in that whole pipeline to go to SFAS the whole time. So they're not, we're not jumping. And then when I went to PSYOP, we deployed almost immediately after I went through PSYOP school. Huh. So wow. we never, you know, I, I never jumped again after I left RTB. So wow. that was never, um, but I will say that the injuries that I sustained from jumping, like, I think that's how I broke my hip originally. Um, and I just kept pushing through it. Like, I think I probably did the injury in airborne school and then I just yeah. continued yeah. to aggravate it as I was going through rip, but I was never, yeah. By the time I, I got out of RTB, like that's when I picked up jits later, it was yeah. more the, it was more the accumulation of the injuries. The neck injury especially yep. was, was much more detrimental oh, to yeah. jujitsu. Cause oh, I mean, God, yeah. You know, I, any hint of any kind of neck crank or anything, I was like, I can't, I can't do this. No, like totally. I've got some serious issues going on. Totally. And luckily, luckily I trained with some good guys who were, they were very respectful of that. And that's why I actually liked rolling with the high level guys better than, than low level guys, just because they were careful. You know, you, you roll with a high level person. You say, Hey, I've got a neck injury. They go, okay, I'll choke you out a different way. No worries. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. And I'll, I'll, I'll say just while we're on this subject, I am incredibly prejudiced against any JITS instructor uh, in their 20s uh, or even early 30s um, just because the, 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 they're still at a phase in their life where they think going aggro is, and is, is to be encouraged. And it's like, yeah, you guys get after it and all that. And it's like, hey, man, if you want to be doing this for any length of time, Learn how to flow. Learn how to go at fifty percent. Learn the learn the form, and 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 stop cranking and beating the crap out of people, so that you can do it seven days a week. Otherwise, Absolutely. the injuries just do mount up so quickly. 
Absolutely. And that's why I stopped, like I stopped doing actually practicing, uh, in Muay Thai. I stopped years ago because you can't do that for a long time. Yeah. Uh, it yeah. just beats the crap out of your body. And I started coaching at a, at a school I was affiliated up, up here, but that's different, but actually doing it, like you said, if you're going to do that long term, you've got to learn to flow. And I think that's, you know, going back and kind of tying a lot of this together, as I look back on it, that's one of the things that I take away from my military career and martial arts in general is is recognizing at some point, and every guy I think has to go through this, recognizing what phase of your life you're in and yeah. also also recognizing that it's it's okay that, hey, you know what? When you talk about your man card or whatever you want to call it, I've I've punched that. Right. Yeah. I jumped I jumped yeah. out of planes for a living. I, I walked through a foreign country with a with a battle rifle. I've done all that like Nobody's going to be like, oh, you're not a man, you know, and at some point you got to come to grips with, hey, it's OK for me to take a step back and I don't have to be an animal every day and, tra you know, train like an animal and be crazy. You can relax and, and just kind of go with get into more of that flow of, you know, just flowing with life. And that's where jujitsu, I think, is a huge benefit to a lot of people's learning those lessons of, OK, yeah. how do I apply that flow to my life and how do I. You know, oh, I don't have to totally. be aggro every day, all day. Uh, and I w and I wish more schools. I would love to keep training jits um, now, uh, but I'm with you. I'm like the injuries mount up. You're a different phase in your life, and I would still love to do it if there was a school that just was like, "Hey, man, we got it. You're just going to flow. You're just going to work on the moves and all that." Because there's nothing like just having the feel of a person there to, to drill against, as opposed to watching it on TV or, or, you know, doing it on a dummy or something, mm -hmm. but, uh, but that just doesn't exist. And, and the culture still isn't there yet. It's still, I think they, they thrive on, Hey, yeah, we're going to do live rolling and go hard here in a minute and let's get after it. And it's like, yeah, dude, I've already gotten after it. I, I just want to work on the skills. And, and I think that kind of is a bit of a sieve mill divide thing. If you haven't gotten after it, then yeah, you know, you might be, uh, you might, still be 40 and going, Hey, yeah, I need to prove myself because mm -hmm. this is your war now on the mat. But, mm -hmm. uh, some of us, it's like, eh, no, I'm good, man. I'm yeah, good. I just want to get better. Yeah. Like I said, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I've punched that card. I don't need to prove myself anymore. Luckily there, I think there are some schools, the school that's here in my town, the guys that I'm still friends with, they, they have that kind of attitude. It's just a more laid back thing. And, you know, there's a lot of guys like me that are working professionals. They're not, they're not out to prove themselves as fighters. Um, they, right. they like to roll, you know, that's what they do. And they, they've aligned themselves with a guy, uh, a Brazilian guy, Octavio Cotto, Master Cotto, who's a very, very mellow, you know, flow roll kind of guy. So it exists, yeah. but like you said, it's, it's hard to find. And, uh, but that's that's what you know. That's really more about that transition into a later phase of life, which is it's hard for us as guys to recognize. Like, okay, you know, I'm at a different stage now than I was 20 years ago, and what that means. Yeah, I want I want to ask you about masculinity and about the pressures of masculinity. I think that's an always an interesting subject. I I remember uh, when Jeff Marshburn was on the show, mm. he had talked about. You know, I mean, there's a guy who was you know SF and then mm -hmm. 82nd and then you know, did a whole bunch of stuff in law enforcement for all these years. And he said he felt an obligation because of his tabs and badges and his, you know, all his accomplishments. He felt an obligation to kind of live up to that. And I don't know how old Jeff is, but he's older than me and God bless. And, you know, I mean, it's up to everybody how they want to live their life. And I appreciate that. 
But, um, and maybe this is why I'm not tabbed and badged out the wazoo, but to me, it's like, at what point do you stop? At what point can you go, all right, I'm good. I did it. And, Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, you know, it's, it's interesting, um, that, that the, the pros and cons of male insecurity, and I'm not saying this about Jeff, let me just stipulate, I'm just saying, uh, you know, that's, that's his path. And, 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 you know, I, I think, you know, this is, you know, if you're wired this way, God bless and thank you. Um, but what I do think is interesting is how much male insecurity can drive you to test yourself and to accomplish things and to do great things because you do want to test yourself because you don't know where you stand. And then at, and then when you become that lion in repose and kind of lay back and go, okay, yeah, I've kind of done it. Um, I guess, I'm I'm thinking out loud here, so I'm going to kind of throw you just a bag of ideas here to sort out. But at at what point are you allowed to kind of, let's call it, sit on your laurels? Or at what point are you allowed to go, yeah, I'm good? And is that something, is this something every guy should strive for to test themselves to the nth degree? Or is that just because we're the insecure ones that needed to do that? And if you're (laughs) secure from the time you're 11, God bless. You can dodge all these landmines just because you're a healthier mental human being. Well, you know, I think, first of all, I think that's probably the billion dollar question, right? For life, figuring out life in general, what you're asking there. But I think I think it depends on the phase of life you're in and how you react to that phase. So, for example, we were talking earlier about these certain people who have this, you know, drive and they have this physical, like a physical gas tank that the rest of us don't seem to have. Well, the earlier phases of their life are going to be easier. You know, their teens, their 20s, their 30s and their 40s are going to be a lot easier. But even for those guys, even your your athletes, you know, your, your highly trained guys, when you start hitting about 50 – that stuff stops working and you have to come to grips with, okay, what now, right? I'm not going to compete with the young kids anymore. It doesn't matter how good a shape you were in, in your, in your thirties at 55, you're not going to keep up with a highly conditioned 30 year old. It's just not, that's not realistic. So those guys have to come to grips with that in their fifties. Whereas me, maybe the advantage of my physical limitations is that I came to grips with all that stuff earlier on. And now I'm in a phase where, okay, so now it transitions more into this intellectual side of things, but that's a danger as well. So I, you know, I've got two master's degrees and I can say the same thing for myself. When is it enough? You know, I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't have a, I don't have a doctorate. So should I get my doctorate? Is that what I can consider, you know, an accomplishment in the academic realm? Do I get two doctorates? You know, at some level, it's the same thing. So what you have to really look at, I think, from the the psychological and spiritual perspective is, what do you mean by accomplishment? What does it mean to be an accomplished person? And at the end of the day, and this is what I'm starting to realize, I have have four children. What I realize at the end of the day, I don't care how many planes you've jumped out of. I don't care how many bad guys you shot in the face. I don't care how many master's degrees you have or doctorates. Did you love your kids? Did you love your wife? Did you, you know, did you make a personal positive impact on the people immediately around you? Because that's something that never goes away. That never changes. There's never a time in your life when you're like, I can sit back and, you know, I've got, I've got kids all the way from 19 down to, to five, sorry, six. He just, he's six now. So six all the way up to 19. And I can tell you that there's no sitting back. They don't get out of the house. They don't move out. And you're like, well, I'm I'm done. No, you just have to, (laughs) you just have to adjust and, and how you deal with that. So 
at every level of life, there's a challenge, but deciding what what accomplishment looks like. And I think in our society, we were talking the differences between a place like Thailand and, and us. The difference with us and the, the, the way we hamstring ourselves is in a very utilitarian mindset when it comes to accomplishment. We look, and this whole conversation has been about accomplishments in, in the martial realm, you know, di, you know, black belts or how many right. tabs and badges you have or degrees or things like that. Those are all very utilitarian. And we sometimes with that, we lose sight of, okay, did I, did I really love my kids enough? You know, did I, yeah. did I should display yeah. to them loyalty? Did I display to them integrity? Did I display to them a good work ethic? Did I display all these things to my children and to my, my brother, my sister, my parents? You know, did I do all of these things to the, to my wife? Was I a good husband? Those kinds of questions I think are, are ultimately a much more deciding factor of accomplishment than the, these utilitarian means. It's not that those aren't useful. They certainly are. And we have to have them in, in certain walks of life. But at the end of the day, what, what really is an accomplishment? And I think that is a really key question that what we as guys have to ask ourselves on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's not, that's just not just a one-time answer. You don't just come up with an answer once and say, yeah. yep, I'm good to go. Uh, that's a constant every day, all day kind of thing. You know, how am I displaying to the people immediately around me? Uh, you know, what am I displaying to them? What kind of person am I being? I realize that, you know, I, I this week, and I'm sure this is the same for every veteran, every veteran this week has been this series of flashbacks into your deployments of, you know, what, what it was like. And I remember realizing, and I, I admittedly, I was not in Afghanistan. I was only in Iraq. Um, but I realized early on, I could make a far bigger impact on my guys, my soldiers. That would be a far bigger accomplishment than whatever I did in that country. Because anybody who's spent any time in, in those countries knows our ability was pretty limited on what we could really accomplish. Like, what are you really going to do by, you know, interacting with the mayor of Tikrit? Ah, I don't know. You know, who knows what he thinks? He probably doesn't even remember me. And why should he? But what can I do for the soldiers that I spent a year caring for? Well, I can display good leadership. I can display good integrity, you know, all of those things. And I, I started realizing like, that's what mattered to me. That's what mattered was the impact I had on those people immediately around me. Everything else, yeah, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, then, you know, I'm not, I, I can't lose sleep over what the Iraqi people thought of me because what mattered to me far more was what my guys thought of me. And did, did I display integrity-based leadership to them and love and care for them? That ultimately was a far bigger, bigger accomplishment to me. And I think that's kind of kind of what we're talking about here is, are you applying that to your life right now? And what does accomplishment look like? So let me ask you then, because you're talking about kids and, and raising kids, and let's just look at youth. And we can sit here and be salty older guys talking about <laughs> kids, and maybe there will be a touch of that. But I think besides just the saltiness, I, I, I do think... Um, well, I'm, I'm going to share a little, uh, anecdote from yesterday. So yesterday, um, you know, we're here in the rural Hudson Valley and, um, in New York and, uh, we were out at lunch at, and, you know, it was at this farm and it's nice and bucolic and all that. And, uh, in walked two girls in mini skirts, bare midriffs, exposed arms, long hair, makeup, nails painted. 
In other words, like just heels. I mean, the whole mm-hmm. works just eye catching. Right. And um, the the first thing that caught my eye about them was that they both had muscles. And I looked, and they were both uh, trannies. They were both transsexuals. Oh, okay. And I remember, and I'm not trying to extrapolate too much out of this, but um, I mean, to me, you know, I've spent most of my life in LA or New York um, that wasn't in the military. Um, so transsexuals is nothing new. I, I, you know, it doesn't really, uh, doesn't really phase me, but what took, what blew my mind was where I was seeing this. And, and also, I mean, to be honest, the body types I was looking and I was like, if this was 1985, those are probably two guys, military aged males that are, you know, jocks. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, again, I'm stereotyping based on body type. Sure. But I'm like, now um, this is where their head goes. And without getting into the whole, you know, men and women and transsexualism <laughs> issues, because uh, that's a whole other kettle of fish. But <laughs> yeah. to me, uh, to me, what, what, what I, I really want to focus on is um, that to me is, let's say, an extreme of where we see um, youth and where something where if your internal mechanism of what is accomplishment and if it's making an impact on those around you and, and, you know, and all that, it's very hard to argue with that, but where's the, I mean, I guess what I was, I guess what I'm getting at, and I'm thinking this out loud, so I'm not as articulate as I'd like to be on this, but I guess my initial reaction to seeing that is where is the male insecurity? Where is that sense of, hey, I need to prove myself in this world? And the way boys prove themselves generally is fighting. Um, that's why they play with guns at an early age. And they look for righteous causes to fight for. And um, I'll, I'll segue this. Uh, sorry, there, I promise there's a question in here. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to throw a couple of other data points out here just from my experience. Um, I remember 2011 no, 2010, I think it was, I was, uh, I won't get into too much who I was working for at the time, but I was working (laughs) for a company and I was, and and I ended up being on the skirmish line of LAPD as they Mm. were cleaning out the Occupy Wall Street protesters. And Mm. again, a lot of military aged males, um, urinating, defecating, throwing disgusting substances at law enforcement, screaming at them, what have you. My point being that there seems like there are wars, like we, you and I know, there are wars going on. There are worthwhile causes out there. There are efforts where we are trying to bring light to very dark places in the world. But the emphasis culturally in this country doesn't seem to be on, I mean, while people support us and certainly the thank you for your services are very nice and I'm a big fan of them. There doesn't seem like the cultural push for our youth to go, hey, man, the military is a viable option. If you're a boy that's been playing with guns from an early age or, you know, watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and, you know, imagining righteous battles, the righteous battles you're being steered towards are Occupy Wall Street or, hey, all those righteous battles you're dreaming of are toxic masculinity and actually you're the wrong gender or it's steered towards something else. It's not steered towards going, Hey, have a little bit of that insecurity. Wonder how you stack up in the world and wonder what, what amount of good can you do in the world? 
And the military is a pretty good testing ground for that. That's a pretty good place to go out there and see the impact you make. Go ahead and dissect this as you see fit. Agree, disagree, refute (laughs) uh, as you see fit. I know I threw a lot out there, but as I say, I'm not super articulate on this because I'm kind of thinking this through for the first time. Sure. But how does all that strike you? So I think there, you know, we're we're living in a fascinating time, of course, and I think that's the that's one of the first things to point out about what you're what you're saying there is that we're living in a truly fascinating time, uh, as exemplified by a conversation I had with my 16 year old son just the other night. He was talking about something came up about pronouns, gender pronouns, and and mm-hmm. the question that he asked was along the lines of, well, I think my wife said something about you know not having to deal with this. Yeah, you know, as we were growing up and, and he said, you you know, he was astonished. You know, you didn't. What do you mean you didn't? And I said, what do you mean when we grew up? When you were a kid, we didn't. Like literally yeah. 10 years ago, this wasn't on most people's or 15 years ago. Yeah. It certainly wasn't on my radar. So yeah. it's it's a cultural shift that has happened at a very rapid rate. And I think that's that's where this is a little bit different than a lot of events in history. But as a as a, you know, semi semi accomplished historian, I don't again, don't have the doctorate. So I'm not a top tier, but I don't, um, we'll we'll only give you two thirds credit for whatever you answer. Two thirds credit. That's all I, that's all I asked for. Um, (laughs) I, I always try to keep things in historical perspective and realize that at almost, almost every time in history, there have been fringes of society that are, that are screaming for something, right? What, Mm -hmm. what changes now with what we've got going on, I, as, and this is how I see it, uh, is that number one, the people who are on the fringes have a much louder voice than they've ever had before. Right. We have the social social media has amplified everyone's voice so that and it makes it real easy to find like minded people all across the country. And it, if you have I mean, right now, you can find one hundred thousand people to agree on anything. I mean, I don't know how many people are in the Flat Earth Society, but I think it's over 100,000. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can find right. 100,000 people right. that agree with anything, literally anything. So right. that seems like a lot. Like that's the size of a city, right? A decent yeah. sized city is yeah. 100,000 people. So if you have 100,000 people on a Facebook page who all agree with the basic theme of something, it seems like, oh my goodness, this is a huge movement. But is it, you know, is it really? Um, but to, to your point about, you know, how that affects men, Here's the other part that I keep in, in perspective with uh, historical context. And this is what makes, I think, our, our current situation maybe more unique than at any point in history. We are, for the first time, really since my, my generation and beyond, for the first time in history, the overwhelming majority of people, not just men, not just women, but the overwhelming majority of people do not have to engage their physical bodies for yeah. the majority of their work just to survive the day, right? So my, my grandfather and his generation before that, most people in society, not everyone, but most, the majority of people physically labored from the time that they were of high school age on. And that's what they did, whether they were building houses, whether they were shoeing horses, whether they were blacksmithing, farming, any number of things. You were physically laborious in nearly everything you did. So the majority of society is is physically laborious in most of what they do. We have transitioned into an almost entirely intellectual-based society where most people's jobs are sitting doing exactly what we're doing. We're staring at a computer. We're typing things in. This is not physically laborious. You're not testing yourself. You're not pushed physically. Well, there's a problem there. And this is where it gets a bit controversial, but 
are we as a society intellectually capable of that as a whole? Now, our, our, okay, so again, controversial, but you look at things like IQ and standard deviation, then you know, a significant number of people are certainly capable of that, but there are also a significant number of people who are not. They're not capable of pursuing an, an entirely intellectual career. They're, you know, and however you want to look at it, but our evolutionary means of getting here has led a lot of people to be more geared towards purely physical, laborious work, and other people are more geared towards more intellectual work. But we as a society have headed in a direction where nearly everything is intellectually based. And by intellectual, I don't just, you know, I think a lot of people hear that term and they immediately think that, you know, disciplines of history and philosophy and psychology and physics and biology and all that. It's not exactly what I mean. You could be a, a software developer, which is, you know, the right. organization I work for. You can be just, you could be even a data entry specialist at a, at a regular business. It's intellectually based in that your, your intellectual capital is really the only thing that's engaged all day, every day. So if kids are not ha- – and, and then you go back to the home life, right? How do kids grow up? Well, you're not, you're not getting up to milk cows every day. You're not getting up to till fields every day. You're not doing things every day, day in, day out, where your survival depends on your physicality. Well, so- and there's also no threat of violence. There's right. no, and, I'm, I'm, right. and, and let me stipulate, that's a good thing, but right. it does engender some complacency, which right. goes along with the sedentary lifestyle. Right. And I should, you know, I should add on exactly what you just said. I'm not saying all of this to say that, oh, we need to go back. I'm not a, I'm not a fan of, of arguing all, you know, this, of this idealized time in the past. No, good heavens. I'm, I'm thankful for Netflix and Amazon. I think it's great. Um, you know, I, I love the fact that I can (laughs) use these things that I, that I accomplished two master's degrees entirely online, you know, completely remote from a school fantastic it's great but along with that just like we were talking about cultural differences earlier there comes a, a a bit of a downside and that is like you said the lack of physical you know there's no physical threat to yourself and so you tend to disassociate from things that may still be there they may still be lurking in society out there somewhere so some type of physical threat might be there but if it's not in your face and you're not dealing with physical you know, realities on a day-to-day basis, then you disassociate from it. And because that's how we work as people. We, if it's not immediately in our face, we don't typically deal with it very well. But this, but spiritually you still, I think, at least for men, I think you still need something to test yourself on. Don't, don't you? I mean, I, I feel like just spiritually boys and men need to be pushed. And if they are not, if society is no longer wired in a way that does that, you start to find some other way of generating something to push against, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's inherent in all of us is this, and it goes back to that concept of accomplishment. How do we define that? You know, what is accomplishment? What do we consider accomplishment? Well, again, for most of human history, for most humans, day-to-day survival was accomplishment. Right now, fast forward to the 20th century, and you have the first time in history where the majority of people— and again, the majority of people, they're not fighting day to day to survive. Yeah. That's a that's a given, right? My food for the next several weeks is right. a given. It's not even, like even if I were to lose my job, my wife loses her job, we're not going to starve tomorrow. We're not even going to starve this month. But So let me let me jump ahead. Sorry, but let me jump ahead for one second. So is there kind of a let's call it for lack of a better word spiritual health that we can get by let's say 
having more people join the military where you go to places where people's survival is not guaranteed and you assist in that effort because, okay, it isn't your life, but why, but help somebody else out of the darkness as well. And you just might help your own mental well being as well. Is that overstating the case? No, I don't, I don't think so because I think you're, you're talking about something that is an age old problem. You know, what, what have I been mentioning here is, is really, yes, it's a, it's a new and accelerated modern version of of a very ancient problem, which is selfishness, right? I mean, it's, it's really that basic. It's selfishness of, of thinking that, well, if I'm, if I'm safe here in my home and everything's good, then I can do whatever I want. And well, no, because there are a lot of people out there who are hurting. You just have to step outside of your comfort zone to find that. And that might look different for, for you know, various people. Like some people, it looks like joining the Peace Corps. Some people, it looks like joining right. the military. Some people, it right. looks like going and becoming a nurse or a doctor or something like that. But at some level, stepping out of your comfort zone and realizing that there are a whole mess of people that do not have it as easy as you and I do, you know, that's that's incumbent upon us to go and find it if we are in this in this comfort state. But that's really hard to convey to a 19 or 20 year old who wants to manufacture crisis. Because, again, yeah. like you said, you know, when you don't have crisis, you, you have that kind of internal need that there probably should be crisis. Because, again, for thousands and thousands of years, we've struggled. Right. And now we're at a, at a point where we're not really struggling. So we've got to kind of manufacture some type of struggle that may not actually be there. Um, and, and maybe it is, but maybe you're amplifying it. And, you know, there's a lot, of course, that's a whole other discussion. I want to segue uh, the, the philosophical aspects of this are, are deep, profound and, um, worth exploring, but I want to segue that into your political consultancy. Tell me about that. How did you get involved in that? What did that entail? And what was the, um, what was kind of the initiative on your part to even go down that path? Sure. So that is kind of kind of serendipitous, really, how that ended up. Um, I wasn't looking to get into politics. I was looking for a job. And as it turned out, my wife uh, knew someone who had headed up a political organization as a gun rights gun rights group. Um, and they at the time and this was 2010, it was right after I got a, I got back from Iraq and I had gone to college again, and then uh, needing a job, and ended up meeting this individual who heads up a what is now a very, very large uh, gun rights organization called the National Association for Gun Rights. Uh, at the time, it was a membership of about 200,000 people when I, when I came on board to work there. Wow. Uh, by, by the time I left, I think they were up to about two and a half million members. And they're, I think they're right now, they're actually, and everybody talks about the NRA in the political world. They talk about how influential the NRA is. National Association for Gun Rights actually spends more on lobbying than the NRA does. Um, They're actually much more influential than most people realize. So they're, they're, and they're affiliated with some other groups, um, National Right to Work Foundation, uh, Campaign for Mm -hmm. Liberty, a lot of the Paul family, like Ron Paul, Rand Paul, they're all associated. It's all kind of one big thing. So it was really kind of me looking for a job, and it happened to be a personal connection that led to me working there. 
Um, and that I spent, I spent uh, about three years working there and learned a lot, learned a lot about how politics actually functions versus how you think it functions. And that was probably the, the biggest takeaway was, you know, you go into working in politics and you think it's going to be, you know, all this intellectual ideas and how you're, you're you know, right, trading right, ideas right, right. and trying to convince <laughs> the other side to change their mind. No, no, yeah, no, it's yeah. not that. It's not that at all. It's, it's really, it's marketing. It's, it's a marketing job. Yeah. And so I learned a lot. And I mean, I'm thankful for that, but ultimately it was, it's, it's a weird world. And unless you're really into mudslinging, I don't recommend it to people. Yeah. Why did you leave? Did you, were you done with it? Were you like, Hey, I've, I've maxed out my time here. Yeah, that was, that was really it. Like I, I started realizing like you have to be a pretty, you have to be, you have to be willing to be a very polarizing person. Um, mm. and I'm not, I try, and I know that some of my, some people will look back at some of my writings from Ranger Up days and Havoc Journal days and say, well, it's kind of polarizing, but I am somebody who, especially on a personal interaction level, I try very hard to understand other people's perspectives. I try very hard to understand multiple sides of an issue. I try to dig in very deep and understand, you know, different aspects of any given topic. And that's not what politics is. Politics yeah. is, you know, yeah. the, the analogy I use all the time is politics. Imagine, imagine you work for Coca-Cola. You are not going to work for Coca-Cola to convince Pepsi drinkers to drink Coke. Right. You're going to work for Coke to make sure more Coke drinkers drink more Coke. So how do you do that? You know, how do you do that? Well, it's not by deep intellectual ideas. It's by bombarding people with the fear of God if they don't drink more Coke. Right. So that, th so that's that really kind of... Sorry to interrupt, but I just while we're right there, the problem talking to you is that you have too many interesting ideas. I'm like, my God, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I want to take each one and, and have a segment on each one. But uh, that makes me understand, though, why Bill Clinton's triangulation theory or, or execution that he did in the 90s when he basically took conservative talking points and adopted them as his own um, under Dick Morris's political guidance was so brilliant because that was literally one of those rare attempts then to actually snag the Pepsi drinkers and bring them into Coke, which as you're saying is not generally what's done. Generally you just try to get Coke drinkers to drink more Coke as opposed to grabbing those Pepsi drinkers and converting them. Right. And you know, I should add that, you know, if you can get people to switch sides, you know, all the, all the better. But I think what the, what's important to understand is the, the marketing principles involved in, is it worth it? And by and large, yeah. no, it's not yeah. it's because it's not worth your capital and whether that's that's uh, physical capital of labor or capital of money spent on ad campaigns. It's not worth it to target people who disagree with you. You're just not going to get that big of a return. Whereas, you know, who am I going to sell? Like, let's say I'm selling guns. Am I going to am I going to get more uh, money out of my ad campaign if I target all gun owners already or people who don't have guns? Well, probably yeah. gun owners, because gun owners, the people who buy more guns are people who already have guns. <laughs> people yeah. who don't have yeah. guns, yeah, they might buy a gun, but really, you know, you see what I'm saying? Like, you're just, yeah. you're going to get more bang for your buck by by preaching to the choir as it is. Well, the, the biggest problem I had with it, and this is where it gets kind of into the more ethical, philosophical realm of, is that entirely honest to continue to yeah. tell people that literally the sky is falling you know, every day, 
because that's what you have to do in poli- politics. You know, we go yeah. back to the, we go back to the Coca Cola analogy. At the end of the day, if I'm marketing Coke and you, I convince you to buy a, a can of Coke, you have something tangible in your hand. You drink it, you quench your thirst, and ah, that felt great. In the world of politics, what are you selling? Yeah, it's an idea. Right. It's not anything tangible. You're not driving a Ford truck off the lot. You're not right. drinking a new can of Coke. You're not eating a McDonald's. You're you're dealing with an idea. In order to convey that idea, you'd have to use scare tactics. You have to. It's the only yeah. way it works. Yeah. And people people say, well, things have become so polarized because, you know, politicians and political groups talk so polarized. You know, well, yeah, they've been doing that since forever. Like that's right. that's literally a, an age old thing. Like I spent a lot of time in American history, history of American political parties. Yeah, we've been doing that for a really long time and, and fear mongering and all of that because you have to because you're selling people on an idea. And I just was not keen on that. Like I like I said earlier about my guys in Iraq, like I was more concerned with the people immediately around me having personal interactions. I'm more of a teacher and an educator than I am a, a polemicist of going out there and, you know, my articles over the years and people might think are polarizing are really just designed to get people to think differently. That's, that's all I ever wanted to do. And and also I'll throw out there. I, I, there's nothing wrong with having strong opinions. Um, especially if they're well thought out. Um, but leaving even the well thought out part is optional. Mm -hmm. I mean, have as strong uh, opinions as you want. I think, um, and I don't see a problem with that. I think the problem is that, um, uh, not to totally pontificate on this, but I think we've lost that. And I, I did an episode on this. I'm just remembering as I'm saying this. So I apologize <laughs> to everyone that's rolling their eyes going, Oh, you're back on this theme again. But I think we, I think we've lost the thread of tolerance. Mm-hmm. We all want endorsement, but we don't actually want tolerance. Tolerance is something that is designed for people that you don't agree with. Mm-hmm. The fact that somebody who you don't agree with, you will still tolerate. Right. But now we do, we say we want tolerance, but we don't actually want tolerance. What we want is endorsement. I want you to agree with me. And if you don't agree with me, and if you're not there nodding your head at what I'm saying, you may be the worst person since Hitler <laughs> and maybe even more so than Hitler. You know, right. and, and that's the problem is that is that there's there's none of that sense of, hey, uh, and I think, and I, uh, while you were talking, what, what came to me, the, the visual that came to me um, is that old Andrew Breitbart quote uh, that uh, politics is downriver from culture or downstream from culture. Mm-hmm. And what I actually think, uh, what I was thinking while you were talking was politics really is designed to be the very last stop in our civic uh, uh, dialogue discourse. Mm-hmm. It's the very last stop. It's ultimately come down to, okay, well, which box am I going to tick here? It wasn't designed to be a religion. It's not designed to be your entire spiritual entity. It's not designed to be a cultural phenomenon. It's designed to be where do the X's nose go on the piece of paper at the end of the day. Um, and when we, when instead, when we front load, politics and when everything has to be looked through that binary which is just innately the innate nature of politics it is corrupting it is divisive it is um inherently negative uh if we're front-loading that then we're starting with we're kind of starting with the very dark uh outlook 
at, at, right off the bat, as opposed to realizing that really should be at the very other end of the spectrum where we'll get to politics eventually, but let's talk through the nuances of these issues. And, tr- and instead of looking at ourselves as Coke drinkers and Pepsi drinkers, try to go, hey, can we all drink the same thing together? And let's just have that discussion. And then ultimately, where, wherever we filter out is wherever we filter out. And that's up to the political parties to fight over, and they can have that discussion. But as a society, let's not front load the politics. Let's front load the cultural discussion that needs to happen. Am I overthinking that or does that kind of make sense? No, it absolutely makes sense. You're definitely not overthinking it because I think you can take that in a lot of different directions um, and, and an area that is of keen interest to me and it's where I've spent a lot of my academic pursuits and just personal learning is the the concept of where politics fits into our society. And you mentioned the, you know, this, this kind of division that has happened over the last 500 years. Um, Actually, and if you've never heard Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, if anybody out there has not heard it already, they should be listening to it. Uh, fantastic podcast. But he he said a quote a while back that I think is absolutely true. He said, the hardest part about start, starting to talk about a topic, any topic in history, is figure, figuring out your starting point. Because you can't talk about anything without talking about the thing that comes yep. before it. Right? You, you want to talk about the, the, the Civil War. Well, you can't really talk about the Civil War without talking about the American Revolution. You can't really talk about the American Revolution without talking about the Enlightenment period. You know, all of these things, they, they go back and back and back. What I find fascinating, this is because I'm a big picture history guy. I didn't focus like a whole bunch of attention on one specific period. I look at a wide range of things. Um, one of the things that I find fascinating is that we have we have done something that may not actually be possible, which is that over the last couple centuries, we've tried to divorce the spiritual from the political and say that these are entirely separate realms. But through most of human history, they were not at all separate. To, to think of them like in antiquity, to say that, well, you have your religion over here and your political over here would have been absurd. And in fact, sure. it would have been absurd sure. to everyone up to and including in the Reformation. So up to 500 years ago, the idea that you could separate these things, that you could you know, keep the political and the spiritual and the religious separate would have been crazy to everyone prior to 500 years ago. And even, even then, you know, it took some time. But now we've kind of split these things apart. Is it, can we? Can we actually split them apart or do we do we see a connection back to what you were talking about earlier with this concept of every guy having this almost spiritual need to prove themselves? And how does that all tie into these these political concepts of, you know, keeping these things, like you said, front loaded in certain areas as opposed to others? Can we actually separate them or are we seeing the manifestation of of the political becoming religious because we've tried to separate them artificially? You see what I'm getting at? Like we've tried I, as, a, as a society to keep them separate, and now we're starting to see them come back together in a very aberrant way. I, I, I do see exactly where what you're saying, and I do think um, my, my first thought is a point of clarification. I think there's – and I'm not saying you were saying any differently. I'm just clarifying this in my own mind um, – that there is a distinct difference between the political, the religious, and the spiritual, that the spiritual does not necessarily line up with the religious, that there is, and I think my definition would be the spiritual is innately, inherently more individual. That is really an individual level uh, uh, determination um, that isn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily have any Venn diagram overlap with the religious. Um, But I do think to your question about, why politics has taken on this quasi-religious 
tone. I mean, my, my short-term answer, and I'm only, I'm not going to go back 500 years. I'll just go back 50 years. But I think, um, I, I do believe that the, the death and the, or the diminishment, if not the actual death of organized religion in certainly in the West, uh, the United States and Europe has left us. I, I think, I think it's been a big misnomer that we could diminish organized religion and, um, somehow that would not have a lot of second order or third order effects that would follow suit. When in fact, what we're remembering is that man is inherently religious man inherently needs something to worship. And if you, and if organized religion diminishes and let me clear, let me stipulate sometimes deservedly. So with an awful lot of abuses and all the rest of it, but if, if, if organized religion diminishes, man will replace religion, organized religion with something else because man needs to worship something. And whether that's the environment, whether that's politics, whether that's Donald Trump, whatever it is, you're going to fill the gap with something. Something has to take the place of that. And I think the mistake that um, many of the intellectual class, I think, made when they kind of gleefully cackled on the New York Times op-ed page about you know the the erosion of of religion, organized religion in the West, is um, is that that could happen in a vacuum, and that the abuses of organized religion aren't simply human abuses, and that are going to transfer with whatever you place power in. And I think to that point, um, when you see the Me Too movement or the Times Up movement in Hollywood, I mean Hollywood has become. Yeah, I mean, entertainment is a de facto religion in this country. We worship at the altar of celebrity. We worship the enter- uh, uh, entertainment as a, as a people writ large, obviously, with mm-hmm. many individual exceptions. So when you have a Harvey Weinstein on the loose, in many respects, that's similar to the Catholic priest abuse scandal because it's Absolutely. endowing somebody with power um, that they shouldn't have and, and giving them a reverence that they haven't earned. And as a result, uh, but we're going to have that anytime you worship something. And the the key, I think, is to hone our, our BS detector as far as what we're worshiping, not simply think that because we're beating the crap out of the Catholic Church, evil is somehow going to, you know, uh, diminish in this world. Oh, you're absolutely spot on. You know, that that's the the very simple reality is that when we try to beat these things down, they, they manifest in other ways. And that's, you know, exactly what you said. <laughs> the Weinstein point is, is, is a fair one. You know, you know, like I've said, not to hone in on that story because that's, that's kind of an aside, but the idea that people in that world didn't know what he was doing to any one of us who have, have any, you know, any experience in adulthood, we know that's BS. I mean, come on. People knew what was going on there, and they turned a blind eye because he was a powerful figure. So exactly to your point, how is that different than a religious devotion? You know, we're giving someone a free pass because they're a powerful figure and they can bring me what I want. Well, that, that's, that's a religious-type devotion, um, again, that, that manifests in ways because we've— Again, you're you're exactly right. Yes, it's not that I'm not saying that this is ultimately totally good or totally bad what's going on. I'm saying this is an evolution of our culture that we have come to 
try to dissect things that may not be dissectable. We, we may not be 100%. able to actually separate these things, but we're trying fervently to do so. And let me, let me throw this out there, see what you think about this. Uh, but the idea that now comes to me is the difference, <laughs> if it needs to be said, between organized religion and, let's say, Hollywood or environmentalism or pol- political activity is that at least the stated purpose of organized religion is to bring us closer to God. To what degree it actually lives up to that, we can all debate, but at least that's the stated purpose. I think the issue that maybe we as a people need to decide, and obviously this is going to happen individually, not as a group, but that it would people would do well to look inside and go, that thing that I'm worshiping, what is its stated purpose? I mean, if it's Hollywood, okay, um, you know, is it just that superficial level of entertainment? Is that, I mean, that's not, I think it's safe to say that doesn't have the the aspirations of trying to bring you closer to God necessarily. Similarly, when we talk about politics replacing religion, well, that's even more troubling because Mm -hmm. now you're looking at something that is inherently uh, made up of flawed human beings. Um, in a negative practice, trying to tear down each other because they're trying to accumulate followers. And I think like you were kind of talking about before, I think politics traffics in discontent, resentment. So if that's the high ideals that we are of the entity that we are replacing organized religion with, well, no fucking wonder we're in bad shape right now. (laughs) Right. 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 No. And and that's absolutely right. Because you know, the, the comparisons, I think, can help us understand this a, little, a lot better. Hollywood, yeah, we can say things like Hollywood and, and the movies that we have are, are a sort of religion that's promising you, but what they're promising you is ultimately very vague, right? It's almost like this, if you look at collectively what's coming out of Hollywood right now, it's, it's a lot of very vague assertions of enlightened ideas. You know, you, you need to be right. more enlightened. Well, that's, that's pretty esoteric. Like, that can mean a lot of different things. But politics is much more dangerous because, yes, it's it's this almost religious fervor that we're dedicating to a group. But ultimately, those are, as you pointed out, they're, they're number one, they're flawed human beings. But here's where it gets really messy is that they are flawed human beings who are, who are if they are successful, they are going to compel other flawed human beings to do what they want them to do. Now right. that's a mess. I mean, that's a mess and a half right there because you're you're trying to talk. You know, you're trying to vote in in a popularity contest on contest one group of people who are deeply flawed. And the analogy I use all the time, and this is what I learned working in politics: the people who go on to succeed in politics are the people who enjoy HOA meetings. Okay, they're the people. That, if you ever been to an <laughs> HOA meeting and you're like, "Oh my goodness, this is horrible," and you know the you know the HO, the HOA Nazi that's worried about your grass, those are the people that are most of who is made up in politics. Yeah. Like, I think people look at the 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 big names and they see somebody and they're like, "Oh, this guy's a really smart person." That's the rarity. That's the exception. Yeah. Most of these people are very dull, very boring people. And those are the people that you're voting in in a popularity contest to control other people who don't want to do whatever it is that you want to do. So, yeah. you know, it's it's a it's a and again, with a religious fervor, we're trying to do this. And it's, yeah. it's reaching a point where even even those who claim to be religious 
in the Christian sense, uh, you know, the evangelical Christian world vehemently supported Donald Trump to the level of worshiping him almost as a second Messiah. Like I, yeah. I saw some of this stuff and I just thought, oh my goodness, like this is this is terrifying. Like to see yeah. people who are claiming to be Christians who put Trump on a pedestal, like say what you want about Trump, whether he was good president, bad, that's not what I'm, you know, not my point. My point is the fervor with which was de dedicated to him was asked, like it was unbelievable to see some of the language used about him. Well, and, and to be fair to those that are out there screaming at their radios or computers or, or phones right now, <laughs> I mean, to be to fair, me. same, same thing with Obama. I mean, when Absolutely. Obama was elected, yes. that Time Magazine cover that, you know, almost had yes. a halo around him. And he's, you know, I mean, we're literally transposing pol political figures in there. And politics, I, I don't think we're blowing the lid off anything to say politics is a dirty business. But I think what we're pointing out is that when it's untethered to any other sense of morality or any other sense of ethics or any other sense of importance when the hierarchy of what is important in American civic life is politics at the top, um, as opposed to being a second or third order effect of, of our civic life, uh, there's, there's inherent corruption and, and for lack of a better word, evil that can happen with that. Oh yeah. And, and that, that's something I think that has been the case for, you know, time eternal, very few, individuals, I think, can handle power. You know, I, yeah. if there are yeah. any noble ones out there, I don't know of any, but I, I think right. that's just an inherent human flaw. Like we, different things happen to people when they get in a position of power that it transforms people. And very, very few people have the natural humility to be able to deal with that. So I don't want to seem like I'm either picking on Trump or Obama in this case. It's what society has. No, it's people. That's right. We have, we have created these icons uh, and exactly what you're saying, you know, that the Time magazine covers a perfect example of icon, iconography that, that uh, you know, we've tried to stamp out in the West. We, you know, we don't want to venerate these icons, except we create icons in a different way. You know, so it, you're absolutely right. We, we've created these figures in a, in a religious fashion while simultaneously saying that religion has no place in politics. And that's right. been one of, one of my points right. of contention for, for political discourse for the last several years. I, I just recoil when I see people saying, well, we need to keep church and state separate. You, you can't. You, you've, yeah. you've, and everyone has proven that. Like these things can't actually, or if, if they can, we haven't reached the point where we've realized how. Let's put it that way. We haven't realized it because we see the manifestation of how it actually ends up in practice. You know, in theory, it sounds great. You know, we're going to keep the yeah. church out of politics, but in in reality, in practice, we are we are doing it ourselves. It's not an institutionalized thing. It's not like there's some official church body who's pulling the strings anywhere. There's no church body that has that kind of power anymore. But there are most certainly people as a whole, as a collective, that are turning political powers and and ideal ideologies into religious ideologies. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking that through. I, I'm, I, it, nobody's going to be able to see this, but I'm gazing up at the ceiling as I do when I'm trying to unthread I, ideas. And um, yeah, I, I think that's right. I, and at the, at the risk of sounding overtly reactionary, I, I think, God, we were 1982. We weren't doing that bad, but goddamn, we really <laughs> lost the thread somewhere in there. Um, listen, you, you, Greg, you've been wildly generous with your time. That said, I have two more things that I want to throw out to you. Yeah. First off, because I missed you on the guns episode, I wanted to talk about guns just briefly. And 
my specific question is outside of a couple of you know notable exceptions you know psychopaths what have you should everyone really own a gun oh i i don't know that i go that far because i'm too much of a uh kind of going back to what we talked about earlier with the individual limitations, you know, the ability to recognize what your own limitations are. Um, again, we're not all Tim Kennedy. We're not all Jocko Willings, right? Yep. We don't yep. all. And I, I remember I was very realistic when I taught concealed carry classes. I was very realistic. I gave an example in every one of my classes and I had more than a couple people come up to me at the end and say, you know what? I don't know that I'm ready for this. And because I, I wanted to keep it very real and say, hey, understand that if you're going to carry a concealed weapon, what that actually means. And trying to give giving some real life examples. And some people walked away from it saying, you know what? I, I don't think I'm capable of that. And I actually respect that more than the person who says, I'm I am, you know, every bit the operator that anybody else is, even though I've never had any any kind of training. I've right. never tested myself. Right. You know, I'm a, I'm a sheepdog. You know, the guy that goes out and buys right. I'm a sheepdog shirt. Well, no, you're not. You know, and everybody knows it. But he's that arrogance. I actually have less respect for that than the person who says, you know what? I, maybe this isn't for me and maybe that's not my thing. So I don't think it's a should, uh, but I think that's a there's a differentiation between that and the right to do so. You know, the, the right, mm -hmm. it's just like driving mm -hmm. a car. I don't think everybody should drive a car either. But does right. that mean, does that mean that I have the ability to decide who should and should not? Well, not yeah. necessarily. No, that's a little bit trickier, right? Because we all see every day we go out on the roads, we see that guy probably shouldn't be driving, but yeah. you know, they are, they pass. Especially the, if you're in Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah, just, no, just about just anywhere. Uh, yeah. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. No, um, I won't go too far. I won't go any further down the gun tangent <laughs> uh, for now. Cause, cause if I pull on that thread, we'll do a, a, a full three hours. Sure. Plus. But, um, but no, that it's interesting. And uh, I say, I, let me just for anyone wondering or for you for that matter. Um, the reason I ask is um, I'm somebody that really has lived in gun control areas my whole life. Mm -hmm. So outside of the military guns were a very foreign entity to me. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, and I've come late to the party on guns rights. Uh, not because I was averse to them before, but mostly just because I was like, look, that's not something I've, that's not a subject I've studied enough mm -hmm. to really have an opinion. And there were so many other issues in the cities that I saw um, that I, I thought were more pertinent, but I am, um, so anyway, I want to throw that out there as, as a question because I think uh, if people, if anybody out there is like me and everybody can scream back at their radios now that nobody else is like me and I appreciate that <laughs> and fucking too. But the point being uh, that if they are like me, they, they might wonder, hey, what, what are the left and right limits that a gun rights advocate um, would see with gun ownership? And I think that's just helpful in some mm -hmm. ways to clear up. Okay, and then I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about Code Platoon. So tell us about Code Platoon, yeah. how you got there, and its mission, because it is um, an incredibly unique and interesting group. Yeah. So just briefly, how I got there was actually through kind of what we're doing now. You know, we, what we talked about earlier, I, I started writing for Ranger Up, I think back in 2011. And at the time, uh, what was called the Rhino Den was, I think, the most popular military blog out there. It was it was incredibly popular. We were reaching huge audience and we had a big stable of writers of which I was I was the big, you know, 
I was contributing at least a 1,000 word article every week for several years, um, if not more. But through that, I got to know through the virtual community, a lot of people in the military community and made some connections. And just a couple, well, about a year and a half ago now, uh, somebody reached out to me saying, you know, do you have any interest in, in being a student outreach coordinator for, for this group Code Platoon? Well, I didn't know what they were, but short version is there are these schools out there that have recognized the limitations of traditional colleges, uh, especially in the tech world. And in the tech world, what, what people realize, uh, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago was that a computer science degree takes four years. Well, by the time that degree is over, a lot of the <laughs> curriculum that's being taught in the tech world is maybe outdated, right? right. So these coding boot camps, this idea of putting someone through an, a very intense, shorter length course that could be updated a lot faster became very prevalent. Well, a man by the name of Rod Levy, who's out of the Chicago finance world, he was a big day trader and, and worked mm -hmm. in the world of finance in Chicago for 20 years. He wanted to do something for the veteran community, and he started a coding school, a coding boot camp specifically for military transitioning military members as well as veterans. And we are it's a 14-week course. Our full-time program is a 14-week course that immerses you in coding languages. And we're putting people out on the other end who are who are very employable, who are having, you know, they're launching their careers in software development. Um, after a 14-week course, our our median salary for our graduates is around sixty-five thousand dollars a year. Uh, just a little wow. bit after graduation, wow. and it goes up rapidly after that. So, within so the name is known. So, Code Platoon is known. Like, if that's on your resume, that actually does mean something to people. Then, absolutely. Well, it's becoming much more so. But in the in the city of Chicago specifically, there are we have some very prominent business partners. I think when people hear the name Code Platoon, they think, well, it's just a small, you know, nonprofit boot camp, which makes it unique because it's dedicated to veterans. But we also have contacts, the likes of which are J.P. Morgan and Chase, Motorola Solutions, uh, DRW, Chicago Trading Company. Our graduates are routinely going to work for these companies um, at, right out of the school that, you know, are again, they're launching $65,000, $70,000 a year jobs at these very prominent institutions um, and going up from there. Uh, you know, learning skills that are very viable, very hands-on. And so the idea was to, you know, address this issue of veterans who are coming out of the service and not really knowing what to do. And do I really want to go get a four-year degree or do I, you yeah. know, what do I do? Well, we can take, you know, somebody in a matter of six months and turn them in from, take them from somebody who's never done anything but email and turn them into somebody who's a, a junior software developer and launching their career that it's very employable, very employable skill set. Is it full time or is it, I know you said it's immersive, but is this something that people can do nights and weekends if they have a full time job? Yeah, they, we do have that option. Our normal, our flagship course is a full time 10 to 12 hour a day course, but we do also okay. have an evenings and weekends option that takes a little bit longer. It stretches it out over about seven months. But even there, you know, seven months is a whole lot less than, than a four year yeah. degree. And I'm obviously, given my background, I'm not somebody who's poo pooing traditional college. What I'm, you know, what we advocate is that college is great for further development, but if you want to launch your career in this world, 
something like what we do is is very viable and it's it's immediately employable. Um, the, the, no, as, the, a, as a college graduate, I'll, I'll poo-poo college. Uh, yeah, I, 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 you there know. Are unless you're trying to get a master's, I'm trying, unless you're trying to be a Greg Drobny and get a couple of master's degrees, uh, I, 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 I'll, I'll poo-poo a BA. Sure, sure, sure. sure. But no, the, the idea is, you know, that the analogy I use, and I think you were you were in the intel field, I think, so you'll appreciate this. What we do is more akin to what DLI does. So Defense Language Institute, it's a language school. You're an immersion yeah, into yeah. a language program. You're every day, all day learning a language. It just happens that it's computing language instead of a spoken language. So yeah. we're, we're taking people and putting them through an immersive language school and putting them on the job, you know, almost immediately. So it, it's it's great. I'm the guy that people talk to. So I'm not a software developer myself. I'm the guy people when they find out about the program and they want to know how to get involved they come to me and I'm the person who kind of introduces them to what they can do and how they can, how they can better themselves. And the cool thing, and I should add this real quick, the nice thing about working for code platoon, being a nonprofit and devoted to veterans and having the leadership it does, I don't have to sell it. I'm not somebody who's required to yeah. get X number of people in. And in fact, I've talked people out of coming to code platoon before because exactly what we've been talking about this whole time, everybody has a different path. Not everybody yeah. is going to be a coding whiz and I, I had some somebody came to us that was had their doctorate in human resources and wanted to understand coding a little bit better. And I said, this is not that. No, like, mm -hmm. <laughs> no, no, this, like, yes, we can give you some free. Literally, we can give you free material and you can understand this a little bit better. But to come to an intensive school for four and a half months, like that doesn't seem very viable. But the point is, like, I, I don't sell it. I just I kind of work as more of a, a coach in how I help people you know, kind of understand their career path and what they can do, what their options are. Very, very cool. There was, I, while you were talking, I was thinking about the times where I thought, yeah, I, sh I should really learn coding. And then at the end, you talked me out of it. I was like, yeah, no, there's no way I'm doing 10 to 12 hours a day, 14 weeks, whatever. Like, uh, yeah, that that's not for yeah. me. But for those that are, man, that that's one hell of a program. That sounds it very, is. very cool. It is. Hey, and Greg, it's a lot of good people. So yeah, I appreciate you letting me, letting me mention it. No, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to. And, um, Hey man, thanks for doing this. Thanks for being thanks for here and giving me. us so much time. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I think this worked out. I don't know. I think you stuck the landing. I think we'll, uh, <laughs> we might do more of these. Fantastic. No, that's great, man. Really appreciate it to everyone else. If you haven't already subscribe. And if you're on iTunes, we would love your five-star review. You can say whatever you want about us. Constructive criticism, questions, comments, snide remarks, we take all of it. But if you can attach it to a five-star review, that would be outstanding because the metrics do matter. Show notes. There will be some show notes. It won't be a ton probably, I'm guessing, based off this episode, but there will be some. If you want to know more about Code Platoon, all that stuff will be in the show notes at the Weekly Havoc dot podbean.com again that's the weekly havoc dot podbean.com or it will be in the accompanying article that i write for each one of these episodes at havoc journal so when that article comes out you can read it and the show notes will be there or wherever you're listening to this podcast just scroll down and you'll see the show notes for that there there will also be alibis if there's anything that i misstated misspoke misremembered, something that needed more context, something that makes me wake up at two in the morning going, why the hell did I say that like that? There will be alibis for that. That also applies to Greg. If he has anything that he wants to 
correct the record on or, or, or change his answer to or anything like that. Generally, guests never take me up on it because I'm the only one that tends to brain fart in a degree of magnitude that requires me to cover my own ass. But it is out there and available to Greg as well. As, also, as always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Greg Drobny. And we'll keep trying to make order out of chaos when we see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. Um, sorry, Greg, keep keep talking for me for a little bit. Let me just check that level again. Testing, one, two, three, testing. Hear me? Uh, okay. you, is there a mic or something you can get closer to? It's a little faint. Yeah, we can. Let's see. I can actually plug in a microphone. Well, that's like cheating. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>